podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Lockdown is being eased in different ways in different parts of the United Kingdom. And sport is coming back. Premier League football is due to kick off again. Snooker is returning and horse racing is back under starters' orders. But what about sports like athletics, swimming, sailing, rowing and the others? This is Anything But Footy, the Olympic and Paralympic Sport Podcast. I'm Michael. And I'm John. And in this episode, we're joined by two journalists who make their living writing and talking about sports that we love too. Athletics, swimming, basketball and even footy. But how has lockdown been for them? How are they surviving on little sporting action? And what about the sports they cover? Do they agree with us there's a long way back to some kind of normality, including particularly indoor sports and events? I'm Liz Burns. Um, I'm a sports journalist. Um, I worked for PA for 12 years before going freelance 2014. Um, I've, done, I've covered swimming, athletics, football, you name it, lots of different, lots of different sports. But now I'm um, sort of like European correspondent for Swimming World, which is a US-based website. And I'm Mark Woods. I'm a freelance sports writer like Liz, writing for lots of newspapers in the UK and in the US. My beat's a bit like Mike and John, Olympic, Paralympic sports. I do a lot of athletics. I do a lot of basketball. Lockdown's been quite an interesting time. We should, of course, reinforce the point that we are recording this socially distanced from each other, all in our own homes. You can always get in touch with us on Anything But Footy via our website, anythingbutfooty.com. And you can find us on social media as well, on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. So we'll start with you, Mark. You said it's been an interesting time, lockdown. How have you been able to carry on your work? Um, I think certainly things have very much changed in, in, in two ways. One, there's no live sports. And while we all have our contacts and we can, there are still athletes, sports people to speak to, who still have interesting tales, some who are doing incredible roles, perhaps related to, to healthcare at, the, at, the, at this present time. You also have to be aware that a lot of sports reporting is about the sport that's going on right in front of you at any moment in time. So the dearth of that has presented a huge challenge for, for every sports journalist, every sports broadcaster you know, in, in the current climate. And also, you look at the future of the media as well. I mean, it's a big picture thing at the moment. You know, the, the economy is not going well. It is not predicted to get any better. The media will take a big head out of this. Newspapers are, were not doing massively well, with a few exceptions before we went into this. The outlook's not particularly great. And for, for sports journalists, and particularly freelance ones like myself and Liz, that's going to present troubles and, and challenges going forward. What kind of challenges, Liz, have you experienced then over the past couple of months? Well, I mean, I'd say challenges in as much as, I mean, some of, some of it's just completely gone. You know, like the football work, because there's no live sport. You know, and as a freelancer, it's not like I'm a staffer. It's just completely gone. So, I, you know, obviously I didn't do the press conferences. There's nothing like that going. So that's completely, you know, out of the, you know, just out of the ballpark, really. There's nothing there. Um, I mean, what I found, the, and I think Mark might, have found, might well have found this as well, is that actually one of the benefits of it, not one of the benefits, but what I've noticed is that, you know, 
this time has been when the fostering of contacts and the forging of contacts has really come to the fore. This is where I've really benefited from long-term work on sports because you can access those people. You know, you can access those Olympic champions and world champions and they're happy to talk. Now you have to look forward as well, you know, with, um, with what you're asking them. There's only so many times you can ask them if they're in a pool in the back garden. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, there are different challenges, but I, I agree with Marcus. What what kind of world media world is it going to be? And I just see it. I think it's accelerated what might have happened anyway. I think it's just brought it along quicker. That maybe we are going down the niche road anyway. But the papers themselves, you know, they're surely just just going digital, or you know, so might just cease operation. One of the things I was going to ask, we've seen BuzzFeed announcing their closure of their news department this week. Joe.co.uk has has gone into administration. These kind of new websites where people were getting their news from couldn't really survive what was going on in lockdown. Papers, as you say, have had a bit more longevity and and, and have maintained that. But do you think, you know, Liz, you mentioned about you work for a swimming website in the US. Mm. Do you think that actually... And, and, and Mark, we know a lot of people who work for The Athletic, which is a paid-for subscription website for, for football. Do you think that really could be the future, um, that there is more behind pay, more behind paywall, unfortunately, moving forward? Or is that a good thing? Well, I mean, I think it works both ways, doesn't it? I mean, I think The Athletic, um, I mean, the model is, an, I, I can't think of any other publication or outlet in Britain that is similar, you know, and they, they do pay very, very well as well, don't they? Um, you know, so as it should be, it's a, yeah, so no, apparently so. <laughs> I wouldn't know. It was never an option for me. <laughs> I've got some personal news. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the internet is that there's so much information out there and there is so much inf- free information that I think if you're going to go behind a paywall, you have to offer something different. And I think you absolutely have to be a trusted source. You have to be the go-to place. So you, you have to have very good people on board. And I think, was it Boxing News who did this? And they won the, they won at the Sports Journalism Awards this year. So, you know, you know, it's worked with them. But I think it does take some, you know, some work, you know, to take it off the ground and for it to actually be profitable is, you know, it would also come down to, you know, advertising, wouldn't it? As well as subscription. So... You've got to give people a reason why. I think also models change and you know, people's perception and the way that they access sport has changed during this. And I was speaking to someone at a streaming service and a very large one, international one, last week. And I said, well, how hard is this impact on you, you know, in terms of what you're trying to build? And they said the big cultural shift that they see, although it's been problematic for their business, is that now we're... We've all been become completely attuned to going on Netflix or Amazon or all these app-based services that, that you have out there. So it's no longer that fixed thing. Even we, you know, we all remember when something like going on a satellite dish was novel. You know, that's become the norm. Now the new normal is, is get things where you want to get them. And I think that will to an extent apply for paid-for services like The Athletic for newspapers who want to put more behind a behind a paywall i think we've become much more attuned to and i think the last two months is in a small way advanced that process so now if you want something you recognize that you pay for it 
and actually the fear factor in accessing it on a on a laptop on an app on a streaming box has probably been dissipated even more just quickly on um your own businesses and what you've been doing has it helped having kind of a retention so being kind of a correspondent for for swimming or you know having regular income rather than having to sell each story individually well, yeah, I mean, certainly for my, oh, good grief, for myself, yeah. I mean, it must be, I mean, I, I know people, and I'm you know, sure we all know people who um, were 100% based on reporting, and so, and I didn't have any contracts, no retainers, and it's just gone, absolutely gone, especially the football reporting, because there's just nothing, there's, obviously there's just nothing there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just very relieved, to be honest, because otherwise it would just have been, I don't know, just completely scary. It must be for people. I think there's certain, I've seen that. I mean, there are people out there, you know, colleagues, great colleagues who are suffering really badly just mm. now. And I feel quite fortunate, like Liz, mm. that the contacts that you make, and I have some very, very supportive editors who have been terrific through these. Some others who at the start of this came to me and said, we, we have no budget for the next while, foreseeable future. Others who just stopped taking calls and there was an admission there because they have to cut budgets because advertising revenues are down up front they said you're out for the next while others brilliantly who who didn't do that have have kept work coming in but i think it's 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 a tough market i think outside of football going forward because we all know now with with hits on websites you know editors are much more able to make informed decisions on which stories will generate clicks we know that if you have a blog on Liverpool Everton, it will get a thousand times more than a report from a swimming meeting. That's the reality of that. And if you're going to spend your budget on the things that drive clicks going forward, that is going to pose a lot of difficulty for people like ourselves. Yes. But also for those sports to generate coverage, I think they will have to be much more smarter from a PR point of view, smarter with how they work with people like us. We will have to become smarter and turn about how we sell those stories, present those stories. So the budgetary issue of coming out of all this, I think will be a massive factor, both for journalists and for sports. I was going to say in swimming and athletics and stuff, it's, you know, especially in swimming, you know, it's that age old thing of, you know, some journalists turn up, they feel they turn up, you know, once every four years, there's the public interest once every four years, you know, and, you know, and then it goes until the next, until the next Olympics. And obviously, you know, we well, we don't have the Olympics until next year. Now, it's, it is, you're, you're absolutely right. It's going to be really difficult. And I think maybe it's going to be, you know, sort of almost powered by the athletes themselves. And, you know, I think someone like Adam Peaty is very savvy. And Liz, you've kind of preempted what I was going to ask oh, you. There. <laughs> have you found that actually access to athletes, the likes of, of Adam Peaty, which in the past maybe might have only happened under quite a controlled situation, and we've all been at those media days where you get your round table or your five minutes, whatever, with the athletes. Have you found actually with lockdown and with athletes having more time that you're actually getting below the surface of them a little bit more over the past few months? Um, yeah, I mean, I've found, I found access, you know, sort of um, pretty straightforward, really. But, you know, a lot of it is because I've sort of, when you work in a sport, as you know, that you know, you forge those contacts over time. It is, I mean, I've always believed, I was always taught, you know, that it's, you forge relationships and it's based on respect, it's mutual trust and that sort of thing. And I think it's in this sort of time that, you know, I've certainly found that, you know, that sort of comes to fruition for a better way of putting it. 
So I've been able to get in touch with people like Adam. But yeah, I mean, it's what I have found really interesting is that I've talked, you know, I've talked to people in different countries. So I've got really different perspectives as well of what's going on with lockdown. So it's, you know, I've actually found access pretty straightforward. I think it's been an intriguing time for for athletes and for governing bodies um, and, and agents, I suppose, people who are responsible for athletes because we've all wanted to write about sport and there isn't sport there. So where do you, you find your stories if you're a media outlet? You want to speak to people. You want to, to find opportunities out there. And I think the very smart athletes and the smart sports have come to the, the fore in the last while. I mean, you look, if you flick through the papers or log on to websites, you can get a sense of which sports are still getting coverage and a lot of positive coverage. I mean, it's, if you want positive coverage, now is the time to get it because they've been out there and you know you see athletes on on social media doing interesting things or, or you know appearing on podcasts or whatever and making themselves available for interviews if, if you get in touch with them you see you know the governing bodies who are putting people up i mean you know the, the great example that i was reading at the piece in the yorkshire post of, you know a few days ago at danny rubin the head of comms at the england Wales cricket board who has been doing weekly zoom calls with one of his players who's continued to be accessible and has roundly you know has got a lot of praise for doing that and the sports who have been switched on and saying we will we will still meet people uh, out there for chats. I've been getting you know, wealth of space and fair play to them. You also the flip side see the sports that have gone into a bunker who who perhaps don't actually have good relationships with their own athletes to make them available. That's been a case in, in in a few major sports at the moment. And when you don't have football, there's been space and there's been time with journalists going and begging. And some sports have taken advantage during lockdown. They'll see the value of that when we come out of it. There's other sports that have disappeared from view and they're going to suffer in the, in the longer term from that. So I think if you're an athlete and you've been, been putting yourself out there and been accessible, people don't forget that. You help, you help the media out in a small way. We're not that important, but you helped us when, when we were in need. You know, going forward, that's going to benefit you and your brand if that's what you're trying to build. Before we dig into a little bit about athletics and, and swimming and, and how we get back to some kind of normality, just a quick plug for your, some of your stories. What are your best stories in lockdown, both of you, that you've, uh, people should go and read after listening to this podcast? Well, when I said I was talking to people from different, different countries, so getting a different perspective. I like that, the sort of overview, really. of So Saras Jostrom, Olympic, you know, Olympic champion, swimming champion she's she's in sweden so she's just having the normal well basically normal whatever that is now um you know there's very you know very little lockdown or anything you know very few measures over there so she was quite interesting but also i spoke to chad leclerc and he was talking about um he'd been walking along the road in durban just going to the shop with his girlfriend and then you know suddenly people uh, jumped out of nowhere and surrounded them asking for money and he was, you know, but it was very much he was tr- trying to shine a light on the, you know, the effect of coronavirus on the people who were poor in South Africa. So that was uh, that was an interesting story, his take on that and how it's sort of like affected his long term view. You know, and he said, you know, if the if the Olympics in Japan next year, yeah, it's awful. But I mean, it's not, you know, for him, you know, he said it'd be a hard, I think he said a hard pill to swallow. But in the grand scheme of things, these guys have got absolutely nothing. They've just been destroyed. So I think that was, I think that's my, yeah, that's one of my favourite ones, really. Yeah. Mark? And that's on Swimming World. I think a couple of stories that stick out. One was talking to the athlete, the hammer thrower, Mark Dry, recently, um, for a piece of the Sunday Mail about, you know, his drugs case and you know, the, 
real injustice that he sees about and a lot of people see about being ending up with a four-year ban for essentially telling a white lie about who where he was when testers came to home and it's whether you agree with this case or not agree with it, it it is fascinating to see how these things personally impact uh, on, on athletes when you put that the hardship there and your world's turned upside down we all see the glamour of you know someone like him competing at olympics you know the years it puts in but then when it all falls apart then it you know, was incredibly honest about about what it went to him and the consequences on a personal basis um, that come out of that and then I think you know the the most impactful story I guess that I wrote and reading it back and listening to it back was was an interview I did with the um, the farm f- father of the of one of our very few former NBA players, um, Robert Archibald, who committed suicide a few months ago, and his father Bobby um, gave me a, a very honest and very frank interview um, in the Mail on Sunday a few weeks ago. You know, talking about you know, what happened and and. You know, the perils of mental health, you know, when you're at the biggest stage of them all and you're left then to, to fend for yourself. And there is an extended version of anyone wants to listen to it on my podcast, the MVP cast. Um, but it was it was searing honesty and the heartbreak of it all. And a you know, reminder for all of us that, you know, there is that that glamorous side and you see the incredible work athletes have to do. But sometimes when they step off that treadmill at the end of it all, it's a big gaping chasm and a lot of us follow athletes' careers until they retire. We sometimes forget about them after they leave the scene. And what happens afterwards sometimes isn't too pretty. You're listening to Anything But Footy, the Olympic and Paralympic sport podcast. We're talking about what happens next for sport post-lockdown with freelance journalists Liz Burns and Mark Woods. Mark, I'm sure John's got a couple of questions for you shortly about um, how athletics sees itself going forward and some of the financial implications of the cancellation of the anniversary games. But... Liz, it would have been around about this sort of time that we probably would have bumped into each other at the, the British Swimming Championships, the Olympic Trials, no diving World Series finale in London. How do our aquatic athletes, our swimmers, our artistic swimmers, our water polo players and our divers, how do they get back to doing what they were doing with the lockdown measures and social distancing and everything else that we're now going to have to learn to live our lives by? I think it's I think it's interesting I mean I think it's very different for each discipline I mean I don't see how you know because obviously water polo is such a contact sport synchro by its nature's contact um at least that's sort of you know it's a program so you know and it's choreographed whereas water polo it's completely unpredictable and and what have you but um I mean, I was talking to one of the uh, one of the swimmers over in the Netherlands, Arno Kaminga, and he was saying they had been back in the water about three weeks now. And what they do is that they go down one lane and back up the next lane. So basically they're doing a huge loop. And I wonder maybe is that how we're, we're going to be doing it? Because they, they have now talked about the phase one with the swimmers, haven't we? We're on step one. And that a total of 32 swimmers from the two national centres in Bath and um, Loughborough you know, they're going to be they're going to be able to get back into some sort of training, some sort of individualized program. But I don't I mean I don't know how it's going to to actually pan out. Are they just gonna have one or two people in the pool at any one time? But then that obviously, you know, it's different for, for the guys in Sterling, isn't it? And people like Duncan Scott and Amy Wilmot, Ross Murdoch, and the guys in Wales as well, like Dan Jervis. So it's all happening at different times. I think 
I mean, I think that in terms of they don't, the fact that they don't know when their competition is, their next competition is, kind of works both ways. So they're not used to, you know, as athletes, they're used to planning, aren't they? And, you know, everything's the stepping stone, whereas now they don't have that. And but then again, it means they do have time. They, you know, so they, they do have the time to get back in. There's, there's kind of the, no rush in that way. But I think like a lot of them need to get back in psychologically. You know, the people I've talked to, they talk about their catch in the water, the feel of the water. That's what they've missed. And also as a couple of the sprinters. So I spoke to Ben Proud and he was talking. There's nothing you can do to, you know, sort of in any way imitate an exploded dive. There's nothing he can really do. He just had to keep on top of his fitness. So it's going to take a long time to get back to, well, I don't know how they're ever going to get back to having eight people in a pool. Mm. How, you know, when they have eight people in a final or heats, I don't see how, when that's going to happen or if it's going to in the next year. And I think also the wider swimming community, you know, people Absolutely. like to go swimming just for, for uh, fitness or for leisure. I can't see that being any time soon. I, mean, I know that Swim England are working really hard to try and work out a plan for when they go back. But as you say, when on earth will that be? There's no hint, is there? Because, I mean, it's just, I think they're just going to have to regulate people so much. I think we're going to have to all book allocated times to go. I don't think we're just going to be able to turn up. And then, you know, they will have restricted numbers. I can only see that's the only way it's going to happen. Because the one thing they don't want is people getting to the end at the same time and turning at the same time. You know, mm. especially, you know, people will be coughing, you know, and what have you. Are we going to have perspex up? I don't know. You know, yeah. there are going to be ways to do it. They're going to have to on so many different levels, but I don't think it's for a little while yet. But I do, I, I do think one thing that's a concern is that there are people who now are, um, they're pool swimmers, but are going out and doing open water, but have, they don't have the, um, the experience mm. at all. And that to me is a worry because they're also talking about it in terms of wild swimming. So people going to very secluded spots, but they may be going alone, mm. you know, and, they, and if you've not done open water swimming, it is so different. It is so different. You know, I'm quite experienced at it, but I had to be fished out a couple of years ago because I just got really bad cramps. I hadn't been, I hadn't taken enough water. Mm. And thanks for someone there who did fish me out. So, you know, so if you're not used to it and if you're by yourself, you know, it's very dangerous, I think. And you, yeah. mentioned, you mentioned the elite swimmers are back and should be training, as you say, in Loughborough and Bath as, as we move forward. But the divers certainly aren't. And also the para swimmers, there's no, you know, yeah. the, the, these guys are not, are not being included at the moment. And you don't, uh, you, obviously with women's football being cancelled in this country while the Premier League comes back, you don't want, I hate to say it, the minority sports, because they're not minority sports, but those sports being left behind. And I think that is a, is a key thing for all the administrators. One of the problems I think that they've got, and you talked about the Loughborough Bath and Sterling issue there, is that if you look at the UK sport guidelines in terms of where what facilities can be used in different sports to return from it, it's very high level. So you have to have absolutely every box ticked mm. to be able to reopen, even from you know, the stage one of elite training. You, know, you need to have medical care. You need to have social distancing. You need to have all the sports scientists there to do testing on a daily basis, etc. You know that costs a lot of money. So, and you need the resources for that one. So, there is only a very limited amount of places that you can do. So, look at swimming. You know, you've got the two centres. The guys in Sterling are sitting around going, "Well, can we go to Loughborough to train?" Well, actually, under the rules right now, you're not allowed to travel to Loughborough from mm. Scotland. So, so it all becomes very complicated. And when you get to sports where 
your training in public facilities. I mean, I was, I was, I was looking at diving into this issue of where people can train now, if you're in this elite level. And there are very few of those facilities up and down the land to the tech all the boxes just now. So for diving, most of those are in a public pool. So if, if you're attached to a public facility right now, that's not that's off limits. So what, what point do are those guys even allowed to sneak in through a side door when the rest of the building is shut? No one really knows right now that the complications with four different parts of the country having different rules actually are below the surface now, making things very, very complicated for a lot of athletes. So for something like swimming, you're all of lots of different people going at lots of different speeds just now within the aquatic world. And in different countries, people will be going at different speeds as well. So you may be at a big advantage if you're in early or a huge disadvantage if you're coming out late. And Mark, let's just bring it back to, to athletics for a minute, which obviously is the, the sport that, that John and I uh, know you best from in terms of our, our various years and competitions that we've worked on together. What kind of impact will British athletics see? And I mean here the governing body from the fact that essentially their season has been wiped out. Commercially, it's not viable for British athletics to have a behind-closed-doors event. It just doesn't add up for them. They don't have the broadcast deals, as Joanna Coates, the new CEO, was saying in Athletics Weekly. So what will be the impact on, on not being able to stage some of those big events like the anniversary games this year? Well, it's a top-to-bottom impact. I mean, if you, know, if you take roughly an estimate of £2 million out of the pot for, for not having the anniversary games, I know that... That what I'm hearing is they can't stage the Diamond League in, in Gateshead. If that's behind closed doors financially, it's not viable. So therefore, you lose the two big meetings. That's revenue that's gone. You've seen UK Athletics return some of that money to the grassroots through the, the four home nation, nations associations. They've all been told you're not getting that handout this year. So therefore, they've got planned work, budgeted work they want to do to develop the sport that, that's now in danger you you look at the elite end of how you fund all the coaches all those programs going into tokyo you know that's a lot of that's up in the air just now i mean there's a, there's a big job to reform uk athletics you know the, the financial underpinning of that is, is in danger because you don't have the two big heavy heading meetings that bring in a lot of the revenue so it's a very difficult time if you're coming in as a new chief executive or governing body just now and then you know there's challenges that that Joe wouldn't have expected and you know when she sat down to, to interview for the job so I think from from the, the top end we see the big glamorous meetings at the grassroots at a local club the, the pain will be felt as well. If you're Joanna Coates the new CEO how tough is it coming in in lockdown because you don't actually you can't actually meet anybody and how do you make decisions about how you're going to move things forward I think again in that Athletics Weekly she said she wanted to have a very good plan. Well, how do you how do you do that while nothing's running, or actually there are bigger questions that need sorting ahead of some of the other issues that that you know the UK sport investigation and the Salazar stuff and all that. I think certainly she's been meeting people. She's been speaking to a lot of people via Zoom or whatever format she's been using. So I think actually people have had time to sit down and have detailed chats with her. And yeah, you know, I think from, from folk I've spoken to, she's been very open to, to listening to ideas and, and taking feedback and, and trying to get a sense of, of what those within the sport want going forward and the criticisms that, that they might have. I think they're in an interesting position that in, if the Olympics had gone ahead this summer, she would have had probably a holding pattern to get, say, let's get through this. 
then let's make radical changes. And it's not that far away. Now you've got Olympics 12 months later than planned. You know you have to make major changes. Everyone knows that there are structural issues within the sport, personal issues within the sport. There is no way you can wait until next year. She will have to act quickly. UK sport has put them under pressure. The home nations have put them under pressure to, to shake up the way that, that things are running. So she will have to move quicker. And I think when you're in lockdown, that will not stop. And I would expect coming out of this that there will be a series of changes at UK athletics, whether it's people, whether it's approaches, whether it's the culture, which she said she wants to change. All these can't wait even during lockdown and you know yes there might not be an athletic season this year there will be a lot of management time being spent to look at where UK athletics is by the end of 2020. And I know we've not got a long time left but I just want to ask one big question to both of you and that is is the structure of sport in this country and Mark was talking about it there in terms of British athletics the home nations Liz, is the structure of sport in this country just too complicated? Have we got too many governing bodies? Is this an opportunity to trim it down slightly? I think because everything has to be, all the boxes have to be ticked, don't they? And it's all very much um, lots of, um, not, lot, not lots of red tape. I don't know if red tape's the right way of putting it. But I mean, I don't really, I don't really see how we need to trim it down. It might be forcibly trimmed down because of the money. Um, I think we do have to look at, I would say there's that, but I think we also have to look at it in terms of things like, you know, the, the grassroots, the grassroots levels and the actual, the administration and how, you know, the fund, how the funding is going to get down there. I just think that it might be something they don't have any choice in because there's, you know, going to be such a gaping hole in the funding that it could well be that governing bodies are, you know, a restream line for want of a so, better way of putting it. Let me put it like this. British Cycling, for example, have a remit where they have to do grassroots cycling, mass participation. They have yeah. to go to the Olympics, the Paralympics and win medals. In athletics, you've got British athletics, you've got England athletics, Scotland athletics. Then you look at Team GB, which is funded by commercial agreements. Para GB is a charity. UK Sport is the government agency that funnels the money to them. Is that too many organisations? Do you have a view on it, Mark? It's, it's a symptom of our country, isn't it? The way our country is run. If you were to sit down and design the United Kingdom from scratch, you would never design it the way it's designed. It's an absolute, as someone that did a politics degree, we are the, one of the worst run countries in the world for the way we're set up. And that's filled into sport and there's no way around it. You could, you could say, as some might argue, that you just have one governing body for athletics and you dump the four home nations that doesn't work because of funding, because they all get funded separately for different issues at grassroots. It just happens that way. It's stupid, it's ridiculous, but it's a legacy of the way the UK was set up. But I think, going back to the, the sort of slightly more serious point, that yes, sports need to look for economies of scale. Sports need to look smarter at the moment. There's lots of sports that relied on a couple of big tickets event, ticket events or you know, sports like netball where it's been cancelled, where you were building something and you haven't got people coming through the door. If that's what you were relying upon, you need to now make sure that you have a plan B because who knows if this is going to happen again. And to finish with, I'm going to put another really tough question for you because things change on a daily basis. Uh, one week uh, doesn't look the same at the moment and you can never predict what's going to happen. A month ago, I didn't want football to come back and now, well, okay, yeah, we'll see how it goes in a couple of weeks. The Tokyo 2020 Olympics in 2021, are they going to actually take place? 
We actually can't say, can we? I do think, I mean, they've said themselves, haven't they, that it's going to be really different anyway. Just so it's almost like expect something that's completely condensed. And we've got 11,000 athletes that are meant to go in. I don't see how that can happen. But some have already qualified. So they can't say that they're not qualified. You know, and they're going to also um, honour that, aren't they? Honour those who've been qualified. We're not going to start again. Um, So I think it'll be things like, I think there'll be a huge colour of the number of broadcasters in. Because I think it's meant to be, is it 20,000 that, that usually go? I think we're going to go down to, oh, a, a, you know, a tiny percentage of that. I think it will really change that because things like mixed zones we're not going to be able to have, you know, especially when we're going to have, say, Jap- you know, Japanese athletes going through or we're going to have the really big names in whatever sport going through, you know, and people are just going to come and, uh, and mob people. We're just not going to be able to have it. I don't know when we're going to find out, but I think I imagine that they will wait to sort of mid-March again to make the decision. I think it will be earlier. But um, I think if we do see it, it will be very, very different and very much condensed as well. Yeah, I think fundamentally the IOC need to say to think, can we have all the athletes there that we were supposed to have? Do you know if you look at how you put it on an event like that, how you put on it so that TV wants it, so they still pay the rights fees, the sponsors pay the rights fees, which is ultimately the most important thing, sadly. You, can you can you or will you cut the number of athletes that go? I think you have to. And you know those lovely stories that we, you know, we have of someone coming last in a 400 meter seat, but was never going to get anywhere from a very small island somewhere in the South Pacific. You may have to go. Sadly, this time you can't come because we can't afford that amount of bodies on the ground in terms of social distancing, in terms of managing things there. I think you can you can cut back certain events. I think you can maybe it won't be as lavish looking. It wouldn't be appropriate for it to be as lavish as it was before. Will it go ahead? Who knows right now? But I think in the all singing, all dancing Olympics and Paralympics that we would have wanted to see in Tokyo, no chance. Our thanks to Liz Burns and Mark Woods for joining us on Anything But Footy. Thank you. Pleasure. If you'd like to have your say, go to our website, anythingbutfooty.com. Podcast Network.